Hey there, welcome to Stories from the Mortuary. I'm your host, Alani Santiago, here to administer your daily dose of death. This week's episode is going to stray a bit from our normal topics. There's no murder, and although death is involved, no one in the story dies. In fact, today's story actually comes from the textbook for my cremation class called Fires of Change. If you're interested in scandals, this one is definitely for you. Today's story is about Georgia's infamous tri-state crematory, and we're going to take a deep dive into what I learned this past year in mortuary school. We're going to start off by discussing ancient Greek death beliefs and how it led us to modern day cremation. I really want to give y'all context on just how horrific this scandal was, and not just by contemporary standards. Of course, I'm merely a student of mortuary science and I don't yet work in a funeral home. So everything I'm going to be telling you today comes straight from what I've learned in my classes, not from hands-on experience. But if you do have any questions about what we're talking about today, you can always send me an email at storiesfromthemortuary at gmail.com and I can do my diddly darn hardest to answer your questions. Of course, you can always check out the Instagram at storiesftmortuary so you can get your daily dose of death, crime, and memes. And that's also where I'll be posting photos for this episode until I can put together an accompanying video on the Stories from the Mortuary YouTube channel. This week, the missing indigenous woman I really need your help finding is Ashley Loring Heavy Runner. The last confirmed sighting of Ashley Loring Heavy Runner came on June 5th, 2017. A video taken that night, which was shared online, showed her at a party on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning, Montana. When Ashley's family didn't see or hear from her in the days after the party, they thought the 20-year-old was visiting a friend. They also assumed she might have lost her phone, something she's done before. Yet after Ashley didn't visit her father when he was in the hospital, her family started to worry. Talking to Ashley's friends revealed Ashley had been out of touch since June 5th. Her family contacted Blackfeet Law Enforcement and the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the BIA, to report the disappearance. Quote, no one took it seriously, Kimberly Loring, Ashley's sister, told the Guardian of the official response. They just said, she's of age, she can leave when she wants to. A couple weeks after Ashley went missing, a tip came in. The same night Ashley was last seen, June 5th, 2017, a young woman had been spotted running from a vehicle on U.S. Highway 89 on the reservation. With fewer than 20 officers on a one and a half million acre reservation, Blackfeet law enforcement had few resources, but tribal police and the BIA conducted a three-day search in the area. Ashley's family members searched the same area. Her sister found a sweater and a pair of boots with red stains. The family believed they were Ashley's belongings and turned the items over to law enforcement. An environmental science student at Blackfeet Community College, Ashley had plans to move in with her sister and attend the University of Montana. However, to her family's dismay, for months the BIA maintained Ashley was an adult who was free to leave on her own. Because Ashley vanished on a reservation, multiple law enforcement agencies had jurisdiction, tribal police, the BIA, and the FBI. Two months passed before the BIA focused its attention on Ashley's disappearance. In February 2018, the FBI announced it was joining the investigation at the BIA's request. By that time, the case was cold. As you all may know, Ashley's disappearance is not unusual. According to the National Crime Information Center, in 2020, there were 5,295 reports of missing American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls. In some counties, indigenous women face a murder rate that's more than 10 times the national average. Sovereign Bodies Institute, SBI, maintains a database of missing and murdered indigenous women, MMIW, in the United States and Canada. 
As of August 10th, 2021, it held 4,749 names and stories of missing individuals. Anita Lucchesi, SBI's founder, taught Ashley at Blackfeet Community College. Lucchesi entered Ashley's name into the SBI database herself. Why are Indigenous women experiencing so much violence? Jordan Gross, a professor at the University of Montana School of Law, tells a True Crime, quote, I and other scholars in this area believe that the Supreme Court's 1978 Oliphant v. Suquamish Indian Tribe decision is one of the root causes of the MMIW crisis in Indian country, which is a legal term referring to Indian reservations, dependent communities, and allotments. What it basically did is told tribes you're limited in what you can do when the person involved in committing this crime is non-Indian, and most Indians who suffer violent crime suffer violent crime at the hands of non-Indians. Following Oliphant, Gross adds, quote, reservations pretty much became pockets of lawlessness where non-Indians know they can go and commit crimes and nobody's going to show up. Nobody's going to investigate because that leaves only the FBI to detain and really investigate things. Asked how to address the MMIW crisis, Lucchesi told Montana's Great Falls Tribune in 2021, quote, tribal sovereignty is the only thing that's going to fix this issue. Tribes have to have the self-determination to protect their people and hold perpetrators accountable. Until that happens, there will be no change. On December 12, 2018, Kimberly Loring testified to Congress about her sister's disappearance. She declared, quote, From the very beginning, both the Blackfeet Tribal Law Enforcement and the BIA have ignored the dire situation that Ashley is in and have allowed the investigation to be handled in a dysfunctional manner. Kimberly told Congress that the sweater she had found was misplaced by authorities. Though it later resurfaced, Ashley's family has not received DNA testing results. The investigation has had other developments. A man named Sam McDonald stated that he was with Ashley for days after the party on June 5, 2017. According to McDonald, on June 11, 2017, he drove Ashley to meet someone named V-Dog, whose real name was Paul Valenzuela. McDonald said he fell asleep and Ashley wasn't there when he awoke. Ashley's family said she was romantically involved with Valenzuela, who had prior burglary and weapons convictions, and spent time with McDonald prior to her disappearance. There have been no arrests or charges filed regarding Ashley's disappearance. The FBI and the BIA confirmed that the case remains open and active. The FBI told A&E True Crime, quote, The FBI works in partnership with the BIA Missing and Murdered Unit and Tribal Law Enforcement Partners to investigate cases involving missing and murdered Native Americans, which are under federal jurisdiction. No specific comment can be provided on an open investigation. The BIA tells A&E True Crime, quote, Ashley's case information is visible from our new webpage dedicated to finding missing and murdered individuals from Indian country. Any new information officers receive that we can share publicly to help find her will update in this space. Ashley's family hasn't stopped looking for her. Her sister Kimberly told the Great Falls Tribune in 2020, quote, The not knowing is the worst part. We're holding on to hope and we will bring her home. We try to look on the bright side, but we are living in a nightmare. Ashley stood 5 foot 2 inches tall and weighed about 90 pounds when she disappeared. Information about her case can be reported to the BIA by texting BIAMMU to 847411, calling 1-833-560-2065, or emailing OJS underscore MMU at BIA.gov. 
The Salt Lake City FBI can be contacted at 801-579-1400, 800-CALL-FBI, or tips.fbi.gov. Blackfeet Law Enforcement Services can be reached at 406-338-4000. When we return from the break, we'll begin this week's story from the mortuary. Are you equal parts cute and spooky? Do you like horror movies and celebrate Halloween year-round? Visit wearecrimsonclover.com for all of your spooky needs. They have home decor, kitchenware, and clothing that'll suit all of your ghostly needs. I just ordered a Faces of Death shirt, and I'm very excited to wear it to work. Use code Miss underscore Memento underscore Mori with two eyes. That is M-S underscore M-E-M-E-N-T-O underscore M-O-R-I-I for 10% off of your total purchase at checkout. Death is unique. It's unlike anything else in its certainty and its incidence. A corpse in some respects is the strangest thing on earth. A man who but yesterday breathed and thought and walked among us has passed away. Someone is gone. The body is left still and cold and is all that is visible to the mortal eye of the man we knew. Around it cling love and memory. Beyond it may reach hope. It must be laid away. And the law, that rule of action which touches all human things, must also touch this thing of death. It's not surprising that the law relating to this mystery of what death leaves behind cannot be precisely brought within the letter of all the rules regarding corn, lumber, and pig iron. And yet the body must be buried or disposed of. If buried, it must be carried to the place of burial. And the law, in its all-sufficiency, must furnish some rule by legislative enactment or analogy, or based on some sound legal principle, by which to determine between the living questions of the disposition of the dead and rights surrounding their bodies. In doing this, the law doesn't close its eyes to the customs and necessities of civilization in dealing with the dead. During the 2,000 years between the Golden Age of Mycenae in 1600 BC and the closing of the University of Athens in 529 AD, on an almost uninhabitable Mediterranean peninsula, there arose a Greek civilization whose cultural heritage has long since been incorporated into the basis of Western thought and action. To the ancient Greeks, death was always conceived as one of the harsher lots of mankind. The writings of the classical period use stern and severe epithets for death. Although the belief in a future existence persists in vague form throughout all ancient Greek literature, early beliefs conceived of the dead as living a bodily existence under the earth. Later, in Homeric times circa 700 BC, this belief gave way to the concept of a shadowy afterlife peopled by disembodied souls, a belief not uncommon to ancient Mediterranean peoples generally. Cremation first appeared on the Greek peninsula three centuries prior to the Bronze Age, when the Greek states were loosely organized into the Achaean Empire under the leadership of Mycenae. The practice of burning the dead had been brought down into the peninsula from the north by Greeks who had contact with neighboring barbarians. Although infrequently practiced at first, its acceptance increased in the proto-geometric period, and it took the place of earth burial shortly before the beginning of the historical period, around 700 BC. The general response of the ancient Greeks to the thought of death was one of resignation, though some cults believed in a glorious afterlife. 
But whatever the belief as to the mode of the afterlife, the general and overriding concept was materialistic in the sense that the soul was not forever freed of a bodily counterpart. Consequently, the funeral ritual and the attention given to the grave and memory of the deceased played a vital role in the mode by which the living related themselves to the dead. Reverence for the dead permeated the burial customs of the Greeks through all ages. Not only was it customary to give the dead a fitting burial, but in classical times, the law of Athens required the burial, or at least covering with earth, of corpses of strangers. Neglect of the dead was condemned, and even a disqualification for office. In the play Antigone by Sophocles, the tyrannical king Creon forbids the burial of the rebel Polynices. Antigone, the sister of the deceased, demands the privilege of at least symbolical burial to the corpse so that its shade might cease to wander disconsolate upon the earth and enter into the Elysian fields. In Homer's Iliad, Hector begs Achilles not to spare his life, but to take the gold Hector's father will offer for his body so that it may be given for burial. Lest the dead remain unburied, the Athenians cremated them on massive pyres erected on the battlefields where they had fallen. Then the bones were gathered and returned to Athens to be entombed splendidly with due honor and ceremony. As soon as death occurred, the eyes and mouth of the deceased were closed by relatives or friends. This act is often depicted on Greek funerary urns. Since the passage into the netherworld required crossing the river Styx, an oval was placed in the deceased's mouth for Charon, the ferryman. Without such fare, the unlucky shade was doomed to wander a hundred years along the shores. Preparation of the body for burial was generally made by family members. The washing of the body with warm water was performed by women chosen from the next of kin. The act had more than a symbolic value, since it was thought that those only apparently dead might be revived in the process. Laying out and dressing the corpse was a sacred duty, entrusted in like manner to female relatives. While the body was anointed with oils, perfumes, and spices, in keeping with the belief of the shadowy afterlife of the disembodied soul, no serious attempt at embalming was made. From the earliest times in Greek history, it was customary not to bury the dead naked. However, the tendency to be extravagant in clothing of the dead caused a decree that only three burial robes could be used. These were for covering the funeral bed, the garment in which the corpse was enveloped, and the outer covering. This early instance of sumptuary law is not historically an isolated case. Later periods in Western civilization, including the early American colonial period, revealed sumptuary decrees and legislation dealing with excessive funerary display. Flowers woven into wreaths were furnished for the dead by relatives and friends of the deceased. A honey cake was included with the corpse, which was meant for Cerberus, the three-headed dog guarding the underworld. While mourning was indicated by dark, subdued colors, the dead were robed in white. Within a day after death, the body was laid out in state after being washed, anointed, dressed, and ready for burial. Friends and relatives then viewed the corpse, a practice which in part served to guarantee that death had actually occurred and that the corpse might not have suffered violence. Meanwhile, ritualistic wailing by female mourners began. After one day of lying in state, unless the social prestige of the dead was such as to require extension of time up to seven days, a funeral procession was formed to accompany the body to the tomb. Usually, at an hour before dawn, the procession set out. It consisted of the corpse on a bier, carried by the relatives or friends, female mourners, fraternity members, and hired dirge singers. Any man might join in the dismal march to the grave, but every woman was denied the melancholy privilege unless she had passed her 60th year or was related to the deceased and over the age of 16. 
As mentioned before, cremation of the dead began in Greece about 1000 BC and was adopted from the immigrant Greek-speaking people from the north. At first rarely used, its acceptance increased through subsequent historic periods, until during Homeric and Classical times it was the predominant mode of disposition. While at no time was earth burial entirely suspended, the belief in the power of the flame to set the soul free acted as a strong impetus to the practice of cremation. It's noted, however, that the ashes of the dead were still conceived to have personal or spiritual characteristics. Although a choice of inhumation or cremation was available in all late Greek periods, funeral rites universally indicated the concept of a disembodied soul, commonly referred to as a shade. However, the ancient Greeks aren't solely to be credited with early cremation practices. The Romans practiced cremation as well, and the funeral pyre was often lit by the eldest son of the deceased. Following cremation, the bones were gathered and placed in urns, often to be deposited in the columbaria or cemeteries on the outskirts of Rome. The Great Norse Vikings were also practitioners of cremation, as well as the ancient Celts, Saxons, and Indians. The first non-indigenous cremation performed in the United States was the cremation of Colonel Henry Lawrence, a former president of the Continental Congress. His death occurred in December of 1792, and his last will and testament ordered his son to see that his body was cremated because of his fear of being buried alive. The story goes that his young daughter was stricken with smallpox and presumed dead. Her body was removed from her bed and placed next to a window awaiting her preparation for burial. Either the fresh air or raindrops from an approaching storm revived her, and she lived a full life. After his death, Colonel Henry Lawrence ordered that his body be, quote, wrapped in 12 yards of two cloth and burned. Soon after his death, his wish was followed. A pyre was built on a South Carolina estate and his body was reduced to ashes. Following the open air cremation, what remains could be recovered were placed in an urn and buried in the family cemetery at Meppen, South Carolina. The modern cremation movement began in the early 1870s when cremation had a modern revival. This began at the Vienna Exhibition of 1873 when Professor Ludovico Brunetti of Padua, Italy, revealed a furnace he had invented specifically for use in cremation. Displayed in the diorama with a miniature of the apparatus were about four pounds of cremated human remains. A nearby sign read, Vermibus erepti, puro consumimir igni, saved from the worms, purified by the consuming flame. Around this time, talk of unsanitary conditions in the overcrowded cemeteries of England piqued the interest of Sir Henry Thompson, personal surgeon to Queen Victoria. After much time to personally study Professor Brunetti's experiments and invention, conducting his own research, and no doubt his experience with handling bodies after death, he wrote what would become the 19th century's most influential pro-cremation works, titled Cremation, The Treatment of the Body After Death. Word of this new method of disposition quickly spread throughout Europe, then crossed the Atlantic. Across the country, newspapers, magazines, periodicals, and medical journals published Sir Henry Thompson's dissertation, and many had their own articles written by experts and advocates on both sides of the cremation versus burial argument. While Colonel Lawrence's cremation was the first recorded in the United States, it can't be considered the first modern cremation. Modern cremation in its early stages was defined as a scientific process that takes place in a controlled chamber built for this specific purpose. This can't apply to Lawrence's cremation since it took place on a pyre in the open air. It was a cold and rainy December day in 1876 when the cremation movement in the United States took a significant step forward. 
in the small town of Washington, Pennsylvania, Dr. Francis Julius Lemoyne, a local physician, had built a small two-room building with a receiving room and a furnace room. The furnace room contained a crematory, which was designed by a local engineer. Planned exclusively for use upon his own death, the facility was constructed on his private property after the local cemetery had declined use of their grounds. The crematory, however, would not remain idle as it was pushed into use by Henry Steele Olcott. Olcott was the co-founder of the Theosophical Society of America, and the crematory was used at his request to cremate one of his followers, Bavarian immigrant Baron Joseph de Palme. On December 5, 1876, the body of Baron de Palme arrived at the train station in Washington, Pennsylvania. Along the party that met the train included Dr. Francis Julius Lemoyne, whose crematory was to be used, and Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, who was the executor of the Baron's estate. The cremation was a newsworthy event that was covered in almost every major newspaper in the country. On their way to the cemetery, they were met by doctors of the boards of health from Brooklyn, Pittsburgh, Wheeling, and Boston, along with about 30 reporters from various news outlets. The following morning around 8, the furnace was declared ready after having been preheated for six hours. The body had been wrapped in a sheet saturated with alum to keep the body from igniting until the door was sealed. Various spices and evergreens were sprinkled over the body by Olcott, and at 8.27 a.m., the iron cradle containing the body was placed in the retort. By 10.45 a.m., the cremation had been pronounced complete, but the engineer in charge suggested that the fires burn a few hours longer to make sure the cremation was thoroughly complete. During the hours following the cremation being considered complete, public meetings and speeches were held in the town square where various individuals in religious, medical, and municipal fields spoke about cremation as burial reform. When the cremated remains were finally removed from the cremation chamber, they were sprinkled with perfume and were placed in an inscribed antique vase with brass handles, which was delivered to the office of the Theosophical Society. A few small apothecary vials of cremated remains were given with permission from Olcott to members of the medical professions in attendance. The crematory at Washington, Pennsylvania was used a mere 25 times before it announced it would no longer perform cremations for anyone outside of its own county. In total, the crematory was used 41 times before it was shuttered in 1901. It was later deeded to the Washington County Historical Society in whose care it remains to this day. Even a superficial understanding of one ancient culture's reverence for the dead clearly illustrates how death is commonly viewed. Though death care practices vary from place to place, a common thread remains. The dead must be treated with dignity and respect. This brings us to the 20th century in Georgia. The Tri-State Crematory was opened in the 1970s by a man named Ray Marsh. The Times Free Press reports that Marsh was a well-respected man in the community and quite literally built a business in his backyard. It was the only crematorium in the area, and soon the northern Georgia-based Tri-State Crematory was getting business from funeral homes as far as Cleveland, Tennessee. In the mid-1990s, the operation was turned over to Marsh's son, Brent. The younger Marsh was in his third year of college at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga when his father's health issues became too severe for him to continue to run the business. The Chattanoogan reports that Ray Marsh had suffered several strokes, was dealing with complications from diabetes, and had been diagnosed with dementia. With limited options available, they turned over the Tri-State Crematory to their son, perhaps in hopes that he'd be able to keep the family venture going. 
Brent Marsh had been a premier athlete in high school, where he was a starter for the varsity football team while also lettering in track. He earned his way onto the UTC football team and had a bright future ahead of him. But within a few years of leaving UTC to run Tri-State Crematory, Marsh would find his entire world turned upside down. According to the Tifton Gazette, Gerald Cook, a propane delivery driver for Blossman Oil Company, was on a delivery call at the Tri-State Crematory in October 2000. On a path near one of the outbuildings, he witnessed a gruesome scene that he immediately relayed to his supervisor. Skeletal remains lay just a few feet from the path, and what appeared to be human skulls and other bones were in a pile of debris nearby. A complaint was filed with Sheriff Steve Wilson, who dismissed it as being a regulatory issue and not at his purview to investigate. Wilson went on the record, according to the Herald Tribune, stating, If somebody tells me they saw bodies at the crematory, that's what a crematory is, a place for bodies. The Tifton Gazette reported that Cook didn't deliver to Tri-State again until October 2001. Though dreading the service call, Cook assured himself that the local authorities would have taken care of his initial complaint. But when he arrived in his truck and began to fill the tanks with propane, he was once again met with a horrific sight. Cook noticed a backhoe 20 feet from where he was standing. Next to the backhoe, out in the open, was a body in a severe state of decomposition. He then noticed a blue tarp that was covering a mound that he assumed held additional bodies. He finished his job quickly and left. Cook's aunt, Faye Deal, was an information management assistant with the Federal Bureau of Investigation Office in Rossville, Georgia. Cook reported his concerns to her at this time, and she decided to contact the Environmental Protection Agency. She spoke with investigator Frank Garcia and began to unwind her nephew's observations. Deal seemed to think Garcia wasn't buying the story she was telling him, prompting her to take a different approach. Deal asked Garcia what he would do if she were walking her dog on the property and found a human bone. Garcia then promised to make an inquiry into the matter. This inquiry turned out to be a phone call to Major Hill Morrison of the Walker County Sheriff's Department. Morrison sent Officer Mark Stanfield out to the Marsh residence. He was greeted by Brent Marsh's mother, Clara, and told her there was a complaint about a bone being found on the crematory property. She and her husband told the officer there was no way this is possible. Stanfield left the Marsh house, looked toward the crematorium, and saw that the gate to it was locked. After looking around, he saw nothing out of the ordinary and left, reporting to his superiors that he hadn't seen anything amiss. Months passed. On Valentine's Day 2002, Deal pressed the matter again, this time contacting a criminal investigator with the EPA. She left a message on Agent Robin Heaton's answering machine, going into gory detail about her nephew's findings on the Tri-State property. When Heaton listened to the message, he decided to investigate the matter immediately. On February 15, 2002, Heaton left his Atlanta office for Noble with another EPA investigator, Larry Anderson. As their agency can enter properties under their jurisdiction without a warrant, they didn't notify any law enforcement agencies of their upcoming visit to the crematorium. When they arrived and opened the door to the first building on the property, the two were shocked at what they saw. Bodies were piled around the room in various states of decomposition, fluid still oozing from some of them. Several bodies were dressed in hospital gowns and still had their hospital ID bracelets secured around their wrists. Beyond every door, they were greeted with scenes that were more and more horrifying. The Walker County Sheriff's Department soon arrived on the scene to assist. 
As more authorities arrived at Tri-State, more horrors were revealed. The Times Free Press reported that the decomposing body of a man in a suit was discovered in a wooden box, the skeleton of a baby at his feet. Outside on the grounds of the crematorium, a dilapidated hearse held the badly decomposed body of a man inside a casket. Some bodies appeared to have been dragged across the floors of various buildings on the property and left to rot. Walker County Sheriff's Detective Walter Hensley stated that, quote, it was like something out of a Stephen King novel, and verified that whenever any building was opened, more and more bodies were discovered. Bodies were scattered throughout the wooded property. There were bodies that were buried, some were stuffed into rusting vehicles and steel burial vaults. They found some tossed beneath trees and beside rusting appliances. Some of the bodies were covered by crumbling cardboard and leaves. While searching the Marsh home, they looked out the windows and saw bodies in the backyard. On February 19, 2002, Dr. Chris Berry, Georgia's chief medical examiner, told the media that 149 bodies had been discovered at that point. He talked of the discovery of about half a dozen coffins, each containing human remains. These coffins appeared to have been buried in the ground at one point and then unearthed. Officials informed the public that a mobile morgue unit had been brought to the scene to help with the remains that were constantly being discovered. A team of nearly two dozen experts consisting of trained pathologists, doctors, nurses, and other professionals was dispatched with the mobile morgue unit. This was the same team that had been on site to help identify victims at the World Trade Center in 2001. Inside a storage building were a set of vaults that were opened. After entering them, investigators discovered that they contained human remains in various states of decomposition. The largest of the vaults contained roughly 40 bodies, while the five smaller ones had been crammed with about 20 or so apiece. Imagine seeing this story unfold, knowing that the funeral home you and your family used for the cremation of a loved one had contracted with the Tri-State Crematory. Though it was obvious that Marsh hadn't been cremating the bodies that his business was given, there were certainly people who had been given their relatives cremains, or cremated remains, while Tri-State was in business. Investigators reached out to as many of them as they could find. They also conducted an extensive examination of the contents of the urns that Tri-State had used to store the ashes of the many deceased people whose bodies had been brought to them. Nearly 80 families came forward, bringing their loved ones' cremains to be looked over. Seven contained substances that were not of human origin. Dr. Bill Bass, world-renowned forensic anthropologist who founded the body farm at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, was asked by a family to see if the cremains they received from Tri-State a few years earlier really belonged to their beloved family member. Upon his investigation, he found that they did contain some small pieces of human bones, but most of the remains were non-human material. Included was a heavy-duty metal staple that would have possibly been used in a corrugated cardboard alternative container, burned wood, some black fabric, and numerous marble-sized spheres of a fluffy white substance. After all the tests, this is what he found out. The wood was burned plywood. The white, fluffy material was used in everything from outdoor carpet to tear-proof shipping envelopes. It would have melted during the cremation process, so it was added in as a filler afterwards, and the rest was powdered concrete, limestone, or sand. During the investigation, it was found out that this poor family's loved one was one of the bodies laying in the woods at Tri-State for the last two years. Only 226 bodies total were identified. 
The situation lends some credence to statements given to the media by several nearby residents. In a bone-chilling revelation, they stated that they hadn't seen smoke coming from the crematorium smokestack in years. The legal issues surrounding the tri-state crematory extended beyond the scandal that erupted across the nation's news networks in 2002. In 1995, it was alleged that the crematorium wasn't operating as a legal business. This prompted former Walker County Coroner Bill McGill to file a complaint against Tri-State with the State Examining Board for Funeral Homes. The Chattanoogan reports that though the complaint was dismissed before its scheduling hearing date in mid-1996, the 27-year veteran of the coroner's office was insistent that Tri-State was in the wrong. Quote, I filed it because it wasn't licensed and it wasn't legal. They weren't following the law, he alleged. The Times Free Press reports that the Elder Marsh didn't have a license to operate, as it had lapsed without removal. But officials had such lax regulations in Georgia at the time that it was overlooked. After all, people in the community trusted Marsh, as they would later trust his son, Brent. The media outlet also revealed that Brent Marsh wasn't a licensed funeral director. When questioned, the state of Georgia admitted that, at the time, these licenses weren't closely monitored. It was this scandal that forced funeral professionals to better implement due diligence with respect to third-party crematories. The Cremation Association of North America published a Crematory Operations Certificate Program Manual, and in its fourth edition, published in 2019, it identifies a four-step due diligence process when a funeral home is considering using a third-party crematory. First, it's imperative for the funeral home to evaluate and review their own internal policies and procedures in regard to the cremation process. Once a third-party crematory has been chosen, the next step is to review and evaluate the crematory's records. This step and the ones that follow were either entirely overlooked by the funeral homes utilizing the services of Tri-State, or Tri-State gained the funeral home's trust regardless, which is poor practice. When establishing and maintaining a relationship with a third-party crematory, it's essential to ascertain that the crematory is operating and complying within legal parameters, as well as meeting all professional standards. The records obtained in step two of the due diligence process should include appropriate certifications and licenses, as well as detailed operational records. The third step in the due diligence process is conducting interviews with crematory personnel at all levels of the organization. This is crucial because while crematory records are valuable, they don't tell the entire story of the day-to-day -day operations. Detailed and formal interviews with the management and staff of the crematory are necessary, and in preparation for the interviews, it's critical to develop a list of questions. These can range anywhere from who owns the crematory and how long have they been owners, to does the crematory perform pet cremations. The final step in the due diligence process is one that none of the funeral homes that utilize Tri-State put into action, a physical inspection of the crematory site. Even if the records came back normal, the crematory had all the proper certificates and licenses and the interviews went exceptionally well, the funeral home that utilizes best practices must always perform an inspection in person during normal business hours. The physical inspection of the crematory site provides insight as to whether or not the facility is clean, safe, and dignified. The golden rule is at the forefront of how funeral professionals implement best practices. It states that you should do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But the way that Tri-State handled the remains of hundreds of families is not the way that anyone should be treated. From 1996 until the scandal broke in early 2000, at least two separate complaints were made against Brent Marsh and the Tri-State Crematory, alleging improper handling of human bodies. 
These complaints were given to the Walker County Sheriff's Department, which failed to act. When the investigation concluded, 334 bodies had been discovered on the property. In the first two weeks of the investigation, about 75 bodies were easily identified as they were the most recent. Sadly, only about two-thirds of the 334 bodies were positively identified, leaving many loved ones in the dark as to what might have happened to the remains of their deceased family members. The primary reason for only being able to positively identify two-thirds of the remains is due to the different stages of decomposition the bodies were in. According to science.org, taphonomy is the study of organic remains from the time of death to the time of discovery. It encompasses decomposition, post-mortem transport and burial, as well as other chemical, biological, and physical activities which affect the remains of the organism. Forensic entomologists study insect and other arthropod biology to aid legal investigations, often into criminal offenses. The main focus of their work is to provide an estimate of the minimum time since death. Forensic entomologists may also be able to provide information about whether the body has been moved after death. For instance, if it's found with an insect species present that is out of its natural geographical distribution, or been otherwise disturbed, the position of wound sites, and whether drugs or poisons were involved. When death occurs, the bacteria that thrive inside the body begin their final task of breaking down tissues and organs to release stored nutrients back into the environment. A corpse generally progresses through five stages of decomposition. Fresh, bloat, which is also known as autolysis, active decay, which is also known as putrefaction, advanced decay, and skeletonization. It's important to note that elements such as temperature can skew this process, so it's not always a reliable way to determine death. An example of this is found in the Dennis Rader case, because after he had murdered families, he would change the temperature on the thermostat to skew the results of the investigation. For the first 24 to 72 hours, the body undergoes very little observable change. Liquids settle in the tissues, creating lividity or discoloration on whichever side of the body faces downwards. Rigor mortis locks tendons and muscles into place, and enzymes begin triggering cells to die and break down. Aerobic bacteria, which are bacteria that require oxygen inside the body, use up the available oxygen and create an ideal environment for the proliferation of anaerobic bacteria, which don't require oxygen. Once anaerobic bacteria begin to run rampant in the intestinal tract, they produce odiferous gases that bloat the internal organs. Bloating is particularly apparent in the face. The skin also begins to darken and discolor, taking on a greenish hue, and the expanding gases may rupture the skin and organs. This allows liquids and odors to escape and grants scavengers access to the interior of the corpse. This stage usually occurs between four and 10 days after death. During the active decay phase of decomposition, insects and maggots feed on the body, helping it break down even further. The skin blackens, and most of the liquid leaves the body, creating a pool or soaking into the earth. The odor from decay remains very strong, and this stage occurs anywhere from 10 to 25 days after death. From around 25 to 50 days after death, the maggots and other insects complete the breaking down of soft tissue, skin, and hair, as well as muscles and connective tissue inside the body. Body cohesion breaks down, exposing bones to the environment and possibly allowing them to roll away and scatter. Insect activity begins to die down as scavengers consume the last remaining nutrients. 
After 50 days or so, the corpse becomes a skeleton. Bones, teeth, hair, and dried skin may be present, but with the breakdown of muscle and connective tissue, they may not remain in an identifiable human configuration. Over time, the bones will dry out and become brittle, but may last for centuries or even millennia if protected from the elements. Extremely dry conditions may alter this process, desiccating tissues instead and leaving the skin dry and leathery. The ancient Egyptians encouraged this process by removing wet internal organs and treating the corpse with a salt called natron, a procedure designed to remove extra moisture from a corpse. While full mummification is extremely rare in nature, the right hot and dry conditions may partially preserve a corpse, preventing or forestalling complete disintegration. While these stages can vary in length depending on the conditions the corpse is exposed to, as aforementioned, each phase attracts specific type of insects. If a body is found within a few weeks, the age and development of maggots can be used to estimate the time that elapsed since death. While external conditions like heat, cold, and rainfall can affect the growth rate of maggots, they generally follow a set developmental schedule. So while flies may not be wanted at a family picnic, for forensic entomologists, the presence of the common insect on a body is both welcome and valuable. Far from being a nuisance, they can provide important clues about when a person died. Flies, particularly houseflies and blowflies, can land on a body within seconds and lay eggs within minutes. They're attracted to the odor given off by the corpse as decomposition progresses, with some flies able to pick up the scent of death from 16 kilometers away. They lay their eggs in orifices such as the mouth, nose, ears, or open wounds. A single fly can deposit up to 250 eggs, which can hatch within 24 hours. The resulting first-stage maggots feed on the body for several hours before molting. They then feed again until they're large enough to move away from the body to pupate, growing into adult flies, which repeat the cycle. A third family of fly, the flesh fly, arrives slightly later but compensates for its tardiness by birthing live maggots rather than eggs. By collecting and studying the mature flies, pupil casings, and maggots on and around a corpse, and using their knowledge of the stages and duration of an insect's life cycle, forensic entomologists can work out how long ago the adult flies laid their eggs on the corpse. When correlated against weather patterns, this gives them a framework for working out the minimum amount of time a body's been dead, known as the minimum postmortem interval. This method's not conclusive, however, as various factors can stop or delay the arrival of flies and their offspring, including weather, clothing, the relocation of the body from a closed house, for example, or even the activities of other insects. Another method used by forensic entomologists is studying insect succession. As the body decays, it goes through physical, biological, and chemical changes. Each stage attracts a different species of insect, so if a body is found more than a month after death, when many of the maggots and flies have already moved on, studying the insects that have moved in to take their place can be helpful in estimating the time of death. Beetles are generally next to arrive on the body. As they have chewing mouth parts, they're able to consume the tougher parts that the flies have left behind. There are several different beetle species that live off the dead, either by consuming the corpse itself or those that are feeding on it, such as rove beetles and hyster beetles. Like flies, they go through complete development, larval stage to adult form, so studying their development can be useful in determining how long they've been on a body. Later arriving species, such as the hide beetle and the hand beetle, feed on the toughened skin and tendons. They're known as specialist scavengers. 
Of course, insects don't politely take turns. They're often present at the same time and colonize different parts of the body. Other predatory insects such as ants, wasps, mites, and spiders also arrive to feast on those insects or their larvae who have reached the body before them. Once again, this method isn't foolproof. Many factors can affect which insects arrive, when they arrive, and how quickly their offspring grow, including habitat, weather conditions, and soil type. Insects do an incredible job of devouring the soft tissue of a corpse. After approximately 12 months, they'll have left little behind. Still, the evidence of their work and lives may be of some use to forensic entomologists. Empty pupil casings remaining on or near a body persist for years. Pupa have even been retrieved from Egyptian mummies. Once the species is identified, these can indicate the time of year or the season of death, which may help to narrow the time frame of the investigation. Unfortunately, despite the best efforts of the GBI, there are still unidentified and unclaimed remains from the tri-state crematory. Brent Marsh was charged with multiple crimes in court. The Times Free Press reports that at first, the state scrambled to figure out what to charge him with. They were dead bodies that were given to Marsh, so there could be no charges of murder or assault. The media outlet goes on to state that at the time in Georgia, desecration of a corpse wasn't a felony. Ultimately, prosecutors built a case that was mostly based on Marsh's unacceptable and illegal business practices. They charged him with 787 felonies, including 439 counts of theft, 179 counts of abuse of a corpse, 122 counts of burial service fraud, and 47 counts of making false statements. Facing hundreds of charges, Marsh was probably aware that he might spend the rest of his life behind bars if he took his case to trial and lost. With his attorneys, he worked out a plea arrangement with the courts. In November 2004, Marsh was sentenced to 12 years in a Georgia prison. News Channel 9 reports that he was also sentenced to 75 years of probation, effectively being under some sort of court supervision for the rest of his days. Additionally, Marsh was ordered to pay $2,000 in fines. Before his sentencing was given by the judge, the court allowed Marsh's victims to speak. For six hours, more than 20 relatives of the deceased that were left in Marsh's care spoke, in what could only be described as a harrowing and emotional day in the courtroom. When they had concluded, Marsh was granted permission to address the court and his victims. Quote, I can't give you the answers that you want, but I can apologize, Marsh stated. When he was sentenced, at last, he had these final words before being escorted out of the courtroom to prison. Quote, I will not cry when I go into my jail cell. I will not whimper. I will accept my punishment. I will do my time. When Marsh entered his guilty plea in court, he displayed remorse, but when he was asked by the court why he did what he did, he didn't give a reason. A medical examiner in Georgia ruled out other abuses such as necrophilia, and there wasn't any financial incentive in not cremating the bodies. Five years later, Marsh's lawyer posited a theory. His theory was that, Brent Marsh suffered from mercury poisoning. This would not only explain his own behavior, but also his father's untimely illness and death. Mercury is present in high concentrations during the cremation process due to the use of dental mixture that contains mercury being used in patients. It was well known that Tommy Ray Marsh never failed to cremate a body. In fact, he performed thousands of cremations over the course of his career. Unfortunately, his health started failing and he suffered from strokes, neuropathy, senility, and Parkinson's disease-like symptoms, which are also known to be symptoms of mercury poisoning. 
Constantly being sick and in poor health forced him to retire in 1996. He never made a full recovery over the next seven years, and he died in 2003. The equipment at the crematorium was in working order, but there was no adequate ventilation, something that could have been fixed had there been any regularly scheduled inspections at the crematory site. The crematory stack, which delivers gases from the combustion process out into the air, should be inspected monthly. Had this happened, the inadequate ventilation may have been brought to someone's attention and then fixed. Brent Marsh's wife also told his lawyer that he suffered from insomnia, headaches, and body aches. In 2004, the lawyer ordered a mercury test for Marsh by submitting hair to a lab. The results came back with mercury in the normal range. However, there were alarmingly high levels of aluminum, antimony, arsenic, cadmium, lead, nickel, and tin. Some of these metals were three to eight times the normal limit for a healthy adult. The term Mad Hatter comes from the 19th century hat makers who had multiple and bizarre symptoms due to poisoning from the mercury they used to make hats. Marsh's lawyer described him as a modern day Mad Hatter and cited mercury poisoning as the reason for his behavior. The criminal investigation and court proceedings were only part of what the victims endured. A civil lawsuit against the funeral homes that sent bodies to Tri-State resulted in a settlement of more than $35 million, much of which was paid out to victims. Additionally, a separate civil suit was brought against Marsh himself. This was settled for $80 million. The Times Free Press reported in 2012 that a combined payout of over $100 million had been made to the nearly 2,000 affected families. The media outlet also reported that the tri-state crematory incident cost the state of Georgia and Walker County more than $10 million. These government agencies were forced to spend taxpayer dollars to investigate, prosecute, and ultimately clean up the mess that Marsh alone created with his grotesque business practices. Walker County was seeking $2 million from Marsh specifically for cleanup, but that suit was dismissed in court. In June of 2016, Marsh was released from the Central State Prison after serving the entirety of his 12-year sentence. He was walked out of the facility by his attorney, McCracken Poston, who told the media that his client was going home to Walker County, Georgia. Poston discovered some details of Marsh's life behind bars, claiming that his client was a model prisoner who spent his entire sentence trying to make himself a better person. Marsh studied and earned theology degrees while incarcerated, perhaps prompting his attorney to appeal to the Christians in Marsh's community. Quote, I'm asking for them to practice their Christian theology and forgive him and welcome him back into the community, he stated. He also discussed how Marsh would be spending the rest of his life on probation and would still have to pay the fines the court levied against him. WSB-TV Atlanta reports that Marsh is unlikely to publicly discuss his crimes with anyone, as doing so could violate the terms of his plea agreement. Marsh is also forbidden to profit in any way from the horrors he allowed at the Tri-State Crematory. Despite Brent Marsh being incarcerated for his crimes, it doesn't take away from the fact that over 300 people were never properly laid to rest. In all actions, the funeral professional must utilize the golden rule, and the tri-state crematory scandal is just one of many examples why. Brent Marsh's disregard for the cardinal rule of death practices resulted in over 300 people not being treated with the dignity and respect that they deserved in death, and it prevented their families from getting the closure that they hoped for. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for next week's Story from the Mortuary.